0: Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is Getting Stoned, Part 2. For anyone that tuned into the first part thinking that this would be about marijuana, I apologize. Part 2 also uses this title as bait so that I can talk about the near stoning of the woman by the Pharisees and also discuss the famous comment of Jesus in the center of that dusty circle. So I won't be sharing any insights about bongs or blunts, or the perils of unwanted stems or sticks, and I won't be going into the pros and cons of spliffs versus fatties, nor will I make any witty rejoinders about swag or kush or hash. I may talk about eating cereal and sugary snacks, as I often do, but as a fair warning, it will most likely uh, be about my ongoing battle with the very American sin of gluttony and unrelated, in, in my case, to marijuana. So, where was I? Ah, yes. Okay. Yep. I was left off on the uplifting topic of hellfire and brimstone. As I've mentioned in other posts and episodes in my slow conversion back toward faith, the hellfire and brimstone speeches never moved me and even drove me away further. I can remember a time in the army when I went to Lebanon, Missouri, and I went into a fairly hellfire and brimstone-ish speech during a uh, basic training thing called Free Day Away. And uh, it didn't do it for me at the time. I was not uh, faithful. I didn't want it in my life, um, and it just kind of uh, turned me even more so away. But since turning back, that changes how you feel about these things. And in reading and rereading the text of the Gospels, it's clear that hell is something very real to Jesus, and he mentions it frequently. When you're turned away from God, the idea of hell becomes repulsive for the exact reason that you want to remain turned away and to face the reality of the word hell is scary. Clinging to the modern idea of God, of of this idea of being good without God, means that you must reject the idea of hell because to consider it as real shatters the worldview. It doesn't work. if If you don't believe in God but you can't believe in hell, it doesn't make any sense. But the cool and non-divine version of Jesus, he sure talks an awful lot about hell. And the readers of the cool version, the dude version of, of Jesus, have to consciously skip those hellish parts. There's a lot of them in there. And you have in order to keep your non-divine Jesus from throwing people into an unquenchable fire of hell for all eternity, you just can't have those things to go together. I think some people see Jesus honestly as a first-century version of the dude in the Big Lebowski. I really feel like the Big Lebowski has uh, kind of taken a, um, a place where people think of Jesus like that. I mean, the Big Lebowski wore sandals, and he had, like, a cloak on, and, you know, he drank a lot of white Russians, and he swore a lot, and he kind of had, uh, he liked, well, he did like to get stoned. So um, I guess, you know, the dude kind of uh, fits some people's idea of what they think of Jesus. But Jesus could not be more clear about what is at stake. And it's much worse than getting your rug stolen like the dude. Um, He says that he is the way. You know, the dude in the show never claims that he is the way. In fact, the dude doesn't really do anything. But Jesus says that he himself is the way. And it's a shocking claim to say, I'm the way. Say, he... The big Lebowski, the dude, he doesn't demand much of anything from anyone aside from trying to get his rug returned to him. Jesus demands we give everything to him. We must surrender much more than a rug to Jesus. We must surrender our heart, our mind, our soul, and our body to him. He requires our time, talent, and treasure. He asks that we pray constantly, and he asks that we graft our branch onto the vine of his life. So... Jesus implies that being good without God will get you exactly nothing as that way of life is basically works without faith. And so we have Catholics saying faith and works and Protestants saying by faith alone and non-believers saying works alone, like you can be good without God. That's like works alone. So only non-believers hold that faith without works is like another way. Um, I should say works without faith. Um, And Jesus clearly does not support that. The both and of the Catholic Church makes the most sense to me as Jesus asks for all of us. He wants both our faith and our works and neither can be faked. We must believe and be baptized and also do God's will. I would say that faith and works go together like peas and carrots, but no one uses that combination anymore for something that sounds good. So instead, I would say that faith and works go together like chocolate and peanut butter. Uh, Peas and carrots are not even familiar to most Americans today. So a peanut butter cup of faith and works might make a better example. I think they go well together kind of like faith and reason. And to quote John Paul II, where both faith and reasons are, those are the two things, the wings we need to fly. Uh, One quick aside here. Most of my close friends are actually Protestants. And we usually don't go into this division around faith and works. In fact, all the arguments around faith and works tend to put me to sleep because the Catholics and the non-Catholics I know who love God are usually out there doing charity out of love for God. Uh, The people I admire most in both Catholic and Protestant circles are those that never even bring up the argument surrounding faith and works, and these people are witnessing their faith in ways that require no argument or apologetics. So I'm not even sure it occurs to these silent witnesses that there is an argument because The people that moved me toward more faith are the ones that believe and are baptized and are doing God's will. So I think we can go around in circles on this argument for years, literally like 500 years, while the poor poor are out there going unfed, and the elderly remain unattended to, and the convicts sit unvisited in the prison. So I'm not belittling that the argument exists and there's a place for charitable argument around the topic but it seems that it can become a stumbling block of pride and anger between people who otherwise could can sit there and say the Apostles' Creed in its entirety, in total agreement. So I suppose the main problem with works is when we are doing it solely to get our card punched towards salvation. As I talked about transactional Jesus, um, I need something, hey can you give it to me? Thanks, bye. Eternal life is not like a pizza punch card, where we get a free pizza after we purchase 10 And nor is it like Burger King. You do not get to have it your way. That slogan only works at Burger King. The turning to God requires sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice that you will want to do once the invasion of grace storms your life. The invasion of grace is a reference from Bishop Barron. There's a sermon. Um, it's a good one. Check it out. Invasion of grace, Bishop Barron. Now back to the line that is so rich in meaning for as you judge, so will you be judged and the measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. It's kind of like a cooking rest. It's like a recipe here. There's some measurement going on. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good image. The measurement will be measured out to you. That little addendum about measuring adds major spice to the chill flavor of the prior sentence. The recipe, in this sense, it goes from being bland Midwestern American fare into a Thai kitchen, five alarm fire. A great deal changes when those who have already swallowed the judge, not mantra, they get that afterkick heat of measure for measure. Suddenly judge not does not contain the whole message. We would like it to be a nice, neat standalone package, a two word pithy tweet, but with the measurement phrase that follows in Matthew, it's no longer simple. Not judging, that was the answer a moment ago. But now Jesus lets us know that we will be judged. All of us. Not just some of us, every single one of us. My concern is that the understanding I once held of judge not really boiled down to indifference or again, the philosophy of Pumbaa or the Big Lebowski, which is who cares? Hakuna Matata. This is just a variation of the idea that all things are permitted all things are permitted that's kind of the lebowski way of life it's kind of pumbaa's way too which even in the end pumbaa kind of comes around and he's like fighting for what's right and justice and you know he's putting his um his his horns into things and okay anyway enough about pumbaa so if we're saying all things are permitted if that's our way that is also a judgment so to say no judgment Is actually a judgment I know that sounds circular but if you judge that nothing is wrong then you have judged that morality is not objective which is making a judgment so you've made a judgment and will likely apply that same notion to your own life and actions and a lot of us say we don't uh, do that but we do so and even even if we take care to not judge others we we'll still be judged and we'll be judged by our actions and our choices and our decisions. And there's consequences. We have free will. We have free will to act and we have free will to judge, which might not be seen externally, but God can see it. So if this all sounds like word salad, which is a super popular phrase now, um, to sum up, you will be judged. And even if you don't think you're judging others, you are. Pumbaa has judged just as Jeffrey Lebowski has judged. And if I judge not because I believe nothing is wrong, or there is no such thing as right or wrong, or it's all subjective, then there really is no true right or wrong, except for what each person decides. And then I've made a judgment. So let me pause. Logic and rhetoric and debate are not in my field of experience. So surely I've committed some fallacy here that I don't know about. Um, Surely my... Podcast is littered with fallacies that I'm unaware of, but these words of Jesus are nuanced and I'm not quite equipped to describe the depth of these verses, but meaning rises up suggesting that our simplified understanding of judge not is incomplete without considering the whole of what Jesus says and including even the Old Testament, particularly because his first commandment over all other commandments that he says is to love God And secondarily, he says to love one another. So first he has this urgency for us to love God. And there are three parts here that I think must be taken in and absorbed all together. You got to marinate in this thing. So first Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, meaning that it is not just a set of ethics that brings salvation, but he himself. It's not a set of ethics. It is him, the person. Second, Jesus says, you must love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And he says, this is the most important rule of all. It's first. It's not second. It's first. And lastly, putting a bow, a ribbon and a bow on this message, he refers to himself as I am, I am four times in John's gospel, which is the most clear declaration of saying I am God that a first century citizen of Palestine could possibly understand. They knew of Exodus three, verse 14, where God says to Moses, I am, I am who I am. There's various, it's, but I am, that's what it's saying. I am, I am being itself. You know, when he's saying I am, that is the most, the universe, like it's, it's not like um, Zeus who lives in a mountain. It's not like, um, you know, the Hawaiian goddess or it's not, um, Jupiter or something. I mean, well, I already said Zeus, but anyway, it's not one of the mythological gods. It's being itself. I am. So then there are not only that, not only does he say that those words, which are plain as day references to saying, I am God. Then there are the many instances of Jesus calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath and son of man. And then there's various other nuanced references and especially the interaction with interaction with Pilate in the Gospel of Mark where he admits to being the Messiah, the Savior, Um, he's not saying this uh, just casually. It's there. And some people will say, well he didn't really say it all that clearly. It's like I don't know how much more clearly he could say it. He could not be more clear that he is declaring himself to be God than if he ran up and down the temple aisle playing the bongo drums and shouting, I created the universe, I'm God. Sometimes I wish he had done that. Or he'd done something like that just to make it more clear to us gentiles um, but to jews the words i am and son of man was effective effectively the same metaphorical bongo drum that we're that we're looking for in fact the reason they wanted to kill him is because he was co- his committing the ultimate blasphemy saying i'm god so for anyone who says well he wasn't really saying that well, why did they want to kill him so much then? Because he was eating. Because they were eating uh, little grains of wheat out of the field. I don't think so. It's much. It's much more than that. So, one. You know, when Jesus says he he says that salvation is through him, and that God must be worshipped, and that he is God. These all point to him as God, like giant arrows, that he he is God in the flesh, incarnated here. So. It's funny, we think of John the Baptist as being slightly off, like, because he eats grasshoppers and he wears this hair shirt. But he never declared anything even close to as outlandish as what Jesus said. And Moses didn't go this far either. And he went far. I mean, he met God, but he never declared himself to be God. And then there's Elijah riding off to heaven in a fiery chariot. Now, that's a wild story. And I mean, it's the source of pretty much every Ancient Aliens episode because they're like, what was the fiery, ch- fiery chariot? But Elijah doesn't say, I'm God. It doesn't. He doesn't get anywhere near the grandeur of this claim. So there's more to this declaration of Jesus. And this is one of those sentences that cannot really be put aside, especially if you believe in the Incarnation and Resurrection and Ascension. And the Apostles' Creed covers all of those. So anyone who's saying that, which is most Christians, believes in those three things, incarnation, resurrection, and ascension. You can argue about other things like the assumption and whatnot, but the incarnation, resurrection, and ascension is pretty much the Christian faith. Heck, I mean, even if you can only get your head around one of those three mysteries, you can't set the words aside. You just can't. Certainly the apostles and writers could never have concocted this story on their own as they were not equipped for it. And if you were inventing a myth you might get away with one or two of these things, but not all of them, and not all of the miracles, and not the portrait of the apostles as bumbling fools. Um, and, I mean, honestly, who would be crazy enough to claim it unless they believed it and witnessed it? Virgil and Homer, or or Stan Lee, they could not have come up with epic like this. J.R.R. Tolkien couldn't have come up with this. The profoundness of Jesus' words is nothing like anything else in literature. And it eliminates the notion that he was a lunatic and leaves me always turning back to him being divine. I mean, even a great liar cannot have this kind of wisdom and also perform miracles like multiplying loaves of bread and bringing himself back to life and ascending into the heavens. I mean, like Joseph Smith didn't do those things to start the Mormon religion. Buddha didn't do those things. Muhammad didn't do all those things. There's plenty of lunatics in the world, but lunatics can't walk on water. In fact, it reminds me of uh, From Dust Till Dawn by Quentin Tarantino, when the vampires, the sun hits the vampires in the morning and they explode. And Cheech Marin says to George Clooney, what were they, like uh, psychos or something? And George Clooney says, what, what do you mean psychos? He says, I don't care how crazy a person is. They don't explode when sunlight hits them. So that's kind of the same thing, you know lunatics there's a lot of crazy (laughs) psychos in the world but they don't walk on water and multiply bread they don't do things like what jesus did and there are plenty of people who claim to be god uh and there's plenty of people who claim to be napoleon or uh, other historical figures but those loonies have not gone to change the world so and jesus didn't come like napoleon with uh you know, 500,000 troops marching into Russia or something. He came with 12 dudes who were not even that smart. And it's, that's what's so stunning about it. So there are plenty of people who have died trying to advance a person's legacy or a cause. Um, you know, like, say, uh, someone who started some foundation or started some movement. I mean, there's even people like St. Ignatius of Loyola who started the Jesuits and those things go on and on. But there's nothing like this um, that, that ever inspired this burning movement that has outlasted every, every human empire and draws people to give immense amounts of time and money toward belief in this idea. And even to mention St. Ignatius of Loyola, the only reason he's doing it is because he, be, he did it is because he was already believing in Jesus to begin with. So um, he's like piggybacking and carrying it forward even further. I think what makes this difficult for skeptics is the miracles Um, Doubting miracles is something that comes very naturally to us, especially today in the age of science. I also think people of the first century were not as gullible as we would like to pretend. However, the words of Jesus have such depth and punch so hard that we see something extreme and strange happening in him and in the people around him, something different from any other sage like Buddha or Confucius. It's so strange, in fact, that the miracles actually require a second look. So even once you deny Jesus our, our miracles or the divinity, these stories leave this lingering effect on us. It's like uh, a, a, like a you're just touched by it and then it sticks with you. Um, and it causes us to look back over our shoulder now and then at the miracles, even as we walk away from them, as if we need to reassure ourselves, like, no, no, there's no way he fed the 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, you know. No, no, of course he didn't walk on water, that's impossible. And the reason why is because if we are wrong, and even a single miracle is real, then the weight of the words becomes infinite on our chests. and We have to deal with it. That's why we look away. We don't want to deal with that. It's too hard. Some people come to believe via the miracles and others via the teachings. Um, those gifted with faith can get to the miracles quickly, while those gifted in reason must approach through the teachings and the parables and sometimes the miracles are hard. It is hard. It's hard to believe them if you're not ready for it. Still, others must come by experience. So I think by the faith, um, reason, and your own experience, all three of those avenues can take you up the mountain. Like there, you gotta you take each road a little bit. You gotta turn on the first one and go on the second one for a while, and then come back and go on the other one, and it like winds you up this mountain. So setting aside the story of the men. Awaiting to stone the woman, since I've already parked it for like 20 minutes. um, If we remove the wisdom of Jesus' words, and also remove his claims to divinity, let's say we're only left with the miracles. Let's say the whole Gospels were nothing but the miracles. What if he only walked on water? Or what if he only fed the 5,000? Or what if he only healed the withered hand? Or if he only calmed the storm? or if he only raised Lazarus? What then? What if we only had the miracles and no wisdom? What would we make of it? I hate to say it, but if that's all you had, then, and you knew that was true, then he's even more so God than if we only had his teachings. I don't mean to belittle the teachings, but the teachings are important, but they're not as important as the miracles. If a miracle occurred at all, even once by his hand, this decides the case completely far more than if he was a good teller of tales or claimant to divinity because we already know everyone knows that no one can walk on water but if you take even one miracle and perhaps walking on water and you pair it with his wisdom and then you add in his in his claims about being God then we have a hat trick of difficult information to handle so uh, we're like a goalie with Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux coming at us at the same time. They're, you're not going to. There's too much. You can't handle it. Uh, for anyone that believes Jesus did not say he was God, then we must surely exclude statements where he most clearly said exactly that. Again, consider where he says, "Amen, i Amen, Amen, Amen." I say to you, before Abraham came to be, I am. That's the. That's him saying, I'm God. Whenever you see "I am," that's him saying, "I'm God." So if you grew up reading stories of Exodus, um, God's answer to Moses about his identity was "I am," um, and that you know the Jews wouldn't even say that word because it was so holy. Like we say, um, "I'm," you know. Hopefully, um, I'm okay saying that here on this podcast, but I probably only have uh, fifty listeners anyway, so maybe it's okay. But uh, it, it it doesn't matter because God knows um, my heart. I can't hide that, regardless. So. Um, Whatever I'm thinking, he already knows. What never ceases to amaze me, though, is that today, after two millennia of scholarship and study, on the heels of the thousands and thousands of deep thinkers who have poured over these books, some people will still come along and believe they have unearthed the secret meaning of the Gospel accounts, and it somehow matches whatever side ideology they happen to be selling. Usually, some unoriginal heresy that gets warmed up again, kind of like leftovers in a dirty microwave. I mean, the Da Vinci Code is like the uh, the lowest level of uh, trying to pull in gospels that were written long after these that are clearly um, not meant to be uh, part of the canon. They're not in the Bible for a reason. So like when you you watch a movie like the Da Vinci Code, it's just this like um, some guy in a cafeteria of a a college saying, wouldn't it be cool if uh, Jesus was something else than what he actually was? Now that's like 1900 years after the fact, when you have all of this happening right after he died, where there were witnesses, where there were people who seen him and they went out and spread this message. And then they, of course, argued about who he was and what his life was. And all of those arguments have already happened long ago. And it didn't take Dan Brown sitting by his computer to suddenly discover the true secret. Um, he just spun a good yarn to make a movie, you know, and kind of slam the church, but that's on him, you know, that's for him. Um, it's measurement for measure. Will we all be judged. So, um, I've heard it said there's a, there's a line, um, someone, I don't even know if, where this came from, but the, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. And I think this is why the Apostles' Creed is a masterpiece. I actually want to do a whole episode on it because it distills the story and the purpose to the points of of what both children and adults of all education levels can memorize and understand. Now, I'm not saying we understand the mysteries, and that's why we call them the mysteries, but we can understand what the mystery is and kind of contemplate it. That's why the mysteries are so powerful, like the incarnation, resurrection, ascension. Um, There will always be plenty of doubters who come along and announce their discovery of some hidden truth. But as the letter of Timothy warned, you know, he said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So Timothy almost like wrote that for, you know, Dan Brown types that are reinventing Jesus and in some new, new way that fits some kind of worldview or, uh, some, even, you know, you hear some things about metaverse or whatever. Um, there's ideologies where they're trying to hammer Jesus into that kind of like the, uh, the chicken, the chicken nugget metaphor I was talking about, but let's get back to it. His miracles, his words, and his claims, they overwhelm our minds with a question and they force us to consider the supernatural as an answer, even when we don't want to go there. I mean, even St. Paul didn't want to go there. Uh, he did not expect to be, you know, going all around the world, preaching the word of Jesus Christ. Like he was killing them to begin with. Um, he got knocked off his horse and everything changed. That's what happens to people. So you can skim the text and pretend it doesn't matter. But if you read closely and study his life, a higher form comes into focus and prevents something strange appealing and otherworldly the problem of his life logic and mysteries is that it all makes sense in the totality of the bible and i believe the catechism of the catholic church is the handbook for understanding it all i believe the sacraments of the church make the invisible things visible to us and they put the marks of faith upon us like baptism confirmation and that the holy mass is sacred and that the Eucharist truly is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, and that through confession, our sins are forgiven as the priest acts in the person of Christ. When the sacred becomes real, there can be no substitute for baptism or partaking in the Eucharist at Mass. Somehow, it all fits together, and in the strangest way, it is the mysteries that act like the glue to hold faith and reason together. The whole picture here is that we can only see parts of it at a time. Um, it's like the Hieronymus Bosch painting of the Garden of Earthly Delights or the Seven Deadly Sins. There's just a lot going on in those pictures. Um, you can't look at them all at once. It's not like a, like a Caravaggio painting where it's just one scene, like Thomas putting his hand in the side of Jesus. And like in those Bosch paintings, there's like 50 things or, or 150 things going on. It's this totality of everything that's going on, the mysteries you have to concentrate on each mystery but all of them together make perfect sense oddly enough Um, and it's hard to explain unless you believe it but it is the totality of all of this you know the scripture and tradition and the very clear presence of the Holy Spirit in this world that make Jesus a magnet that we cannot peel our eyes away from still today there's nothing quite like these scenes and these stories and not to mention the parables in all of written literature and recorded history. So finally, back to the circle of stoning, where I was supposed to, we were getting stoned here. So when the woman sat in the middle, Jesus drew his finger in the sand, doodling while the righteous men warmed rocks in their hands, ready to throw them. Some assume that Jesus was writing the men's sins in the sand and that he already knew their hearts and their errors um, while they were lying and preparing to kill the woman. But it doesn't say that in the story, so it's only speculation, <clears throat> and it's a good speculation because it's it's fun to think of it that way, um, because we want to judge the Pharisees honestly. That's the Pharisees are like the the uh, like the Harlem Globetrotters always play the Washington Generals, and Jesus is always uh, beating the Pharisees, just like the Globetrotters never lose to the um, the Generals. Um, so we want, we, we kind of like to see them lose, you know, it's like, yeah, take that. But that's not what, uh, I don't think Jesus is looking at it that way. Cause that's the, basically the zero sum game that we are, uh, we do in our world. And we're not thinking of heavenly things. It's like the uncharitable approach to the Pharisees when he's actually correcting them. Um, in reality, they're, they're keeping, they're trying, they're doing their best to keep God's law as they understand it. And he's correcting them. So. If he's if he's leaning down in the sand and writing something, we just don't know that that's what he's doing. Um, he might just be keeping his cool. He's ignoring the tension. He's detached and doesn't care. He's like, you know, like he always says, you have to return to faith like a child. Maybe he is doodling in the sand like a child. Um, he's showing this calmness amid these storms. He does it on the water. He actually calms the water. He's sleeping during like a storm on the water. So he obviously doesn't get too worried about a lot of things and so he's he as far as we know in the story he's just drawing in the sand and that's all we know and whether or not he's doing it like the shortstop in little league um or he's just ignoring the stress and anxiety or he whatever um i think if anything it shows that he's ignoring the these nattering like small-souled adults around him Um, but that doesn't mean that he is writing off adultery and sin as inconsequential since he's saying all parts of the law stand. Um, so, but what, what is missed in this whole story is that we will be judged. Um, he may, may not be writing our sins in the sand because he already knows them. He doesn't need to write them down. Um, he'll probably name them when we get to our, our particular judgment and won't that be uh, uh, scary. It's not like going to give a, um, a presentation at work or something. This is like, uh, yeah, this is, this is the end. you gotta, you got to answer now for everything you did in life. Um, it's guaranteed, this judgment, as nothing can be hidden from God. We will be judged, just not by each other. And I could almost hear him saying, I'll take care of the judgment, but thanks for offering to help. And that includes us when we're uh, like trying to gloat over the Pharisees as if we were not like them somehow when we are. Strangely enough, anyone that I've heard utter the words, judge not, um, usually goes on to spend the next breath judging others. And I'm not going to pretend I don't do this. Um, So Tupac, Shakur, yeah, he says only God can judge me. And then much of the song is him judging others. It's a great song. Um, Metallica has Holier Than Thou, and that's a great song as well. Uh, And then... But when when he got when Jesus says measure for measure we will be judged, um, the, he gives us the great warning about the unforgivable sin. Those are things that make me shudder. So I I don't think it's smart I guess to take the judge not line by itself without um, taking the next lines and looking at yourself because that's uh, what I have to do. Um, otherwise you can you can easily just try to twist it into whatever you're doing is right when there's a very good chance. Uh, as he says the the plank in someone else's eye or the plank You'll look point the speck out in someone else's eye, but not the plank in your own and we all do that um, I certainly do so There's a moment where Jesus says uh, if you do not have a change of heart You will get to the day of judgment and God will say I never knew you I never knew you that's in Matthew chapter 7. This means you can appear to love God you can do all the right things. You can make all the right moves. But God knows what you're really all about. And that's, that's actually what he's, he's taken up the Pharisees for all the time. He's always after them about that because they do all the right things. They make all the right moves. But he knows that they're not changed internally. So the pizza punch card idea... That's just going to be thrown in the trash. Um, you're going to get to the pizza place like Papa Murphy's and you'll have like 13 punches in it. And they're going to take your card, the cashier, and throw it in the trash and say, yeah, we don't take those anymore. We have a different system. Uh, now you have to do something else online. That's, the punch card doesn't work. It's expired. Um, Jesus knows your interior state and you can't fool him. I can't fool him. So without interior change, I've made no change and I can't fake it. Um, I used to know this, like I knew I I couldn't fake it. I remember going to church after I was not believing and I'd like mutter the Nicene Creed and skip parts that I didn't really like. And I'd just kind of, you know, go through the motions. But I I actually felt it was worse for me to say it um, than if I didn't believe it, than if uh, if I just kept my mouth shut. But in any case, I was just kind of there, not really believing. So you can fool people, You can fool people. That's, that's a possibility. But you, can you fool God? No. If you think you can fool God, you're fooling yourself. Uh, superficiality in actions and appearance is much like unrighteous judgment. You cannot fool God just as those ready to stone. The woman could not fool Jesus. And like his one liner just like crushed him. So those men wielding rocks who walked away, I always wonder what happened to them. You know, were they changed? We don't know what happens to them afterwards. Perhaps some were changed as Jesus spun the accusation back at them. And perhaps knowing the woman is guilty but not condemned struck them as profound on the way home and they realized that, well, forgiveness is possible. Maybe I need to change. Maybe, you know, that's how you do change is when things like this happen. There are actually these uh, these moments that you you might feel crushed, but you might wake up a week later and think, Okay, I need to change. And you start taking action that moves you forward. And in, in, it's those, like I said, those weaknesses that become the things that will purify you. Uh, wouldn't we love to know, I mean, really, to love to know what happened to those men? It's like, it's like the other nine lepers. What happened to the other nine lepers? The one came back and said, thank you. And the nine just walked away. Uh, here's another one. What happened to the rich young ruler after Jesus said he should uh, give all his money away? what did he do? Cause he went off moping and sad. Um, so we have all these cliffhangers where we have to wait for season two, but season two got canceled due to crucifixion. So we'll never know. Um, but, or maybe someday we will, but not today. And we have to go through our own judgment first. So, um, maybe we'll, who knows, perhaps, uh, perhaps the Pharisees just seethed with anger and that's what helped them, you know, put Jesus on the cross. And, but maybe later they realized their sin and turned, like St. Paul. I mean, that's, that is the story of St. Paul in a nutshell. You know, after he was out torturing and killing the first followers, he is awakened and changed completely. So we don't know what happened to those Pharisees. And we don't need to know because we are those people in the circle wanting to stone. I mean, just look at online today. There's online virtual stonings happening daily for anyone that says anything. Um, I, I think it's always funny when you, you people look back on these ancient times and think how primitive people were, and you can see on like uh, Twitter or Facebook or something where, like, there people are lined up to stone someone who said something that they didn't like. It's it's exactly the same thing, and it's the small soul that does that. It's it's these uh, ones who are not interiorly changed. Who can be charitable toward their enemies? So, it's not like this has gone away. You know, we are all the Pharisees. We're the nine lepers who didn't return. We're the rich young ruler. Um, that's the funny thing, I guess. I realized when I thought about what happened to these these people, I realized that wondering about them is the same as wondering about myself. These are like uh, cautionary tales, I guess you could say. Uh, the men who came to stone the woman whim, the woman represent all of us the readers uh, the people, the fallen souls of this world, you know, it's comical then to read a story of the adulterer and the stoning. And I spent so much time reflecting on my judgment of the Pharisees. And if it didn't cause me like fear and trembling, I'd be laughing about it. But, but it's, uh, if I'm judging the Pharisees, what am I doing? I'm doing the exact thing that it's saying in the story not to do anyway. Jesus impacts this scene scene, using very few words. You know, there's not a lot of speech. There's a little bit of dialogue here, but not a lot. The woman, who's the target of the stoning, she's not condemned. So we wonder, how can this be if Jesus has come to fulfill, like he says, the Law and the Prophets, how can she be guilty but not condemned? How can we be guilty but not condemned? And that's the question right there. That's the secret sauce of the Gospel accounts. And what is the secret? All are guilty. You know, we all deserve some kind of condemnation, but forgiveness is available and forgiveness is possible. Redemption is possible. And all are guilty, but all are not condemned as redemption can be found in the person of Jesus. Forgiveness comes through the immense sacrifice of Jesus as he takes the sins on himself. Uh, The fallen, when I say fallen, that's you and me and everyone, we can still like win because by his own choice, God chooses to be sacrificed. Like he comes down to earth in human form and stands in the scene at the end. In this this circle, he's alone with the rock and no one gets stoned to death in the story. But then at the end of his own human life, he is once again alone. He's in the center, but this time he's on the cross. And there again, he's alone. He's abandoned. He's humiliated. He's, he's humiliated repeatedly tortured, beaten, stabbed, uh, yeah, so many things, he's, and he's accepting his, his fate this way, um, he's not condemned, or he's he's condemned, I mean, we're not somehow, you know, he's guilty, but he's without sin, and on the cross, we see our own sins on full display, in the agony of his torture, as his lifeblood drains, and his mouth goes dry, his lungs collapse, his muscles and tendons tear, His feet and hands rip against metal as he tries to shift and support his body on the cross. He can't lean his head back on the wood because the thorns on his head cut him. He can't lean his head forward because it shifts his weight forward and, and it will thereby cut his feet worse. He can't press himself upward or his feet will dig into the nail. He can't let himself be lowered or his hands will gape further on their own nails. So three hours of this, three hours of this pain... Um, having run marathons and things, three hours is a long time to feel pain. Um, I'm not fast enough to do it in three hours. It takes me about, it takes me longer than that <laughs> almost four, but three hours is a very long time. And you, if you think about this, when you look at the cross of the pain and the suffering, and not only that, but the dehydration, the, 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 the hanging, the inability to breathe. And then the insults and the jeering, and then they offer him some nasty um, sponge with gall in it or whatever. It's like, there's not, um, there's no, there's no, uh, relax. There's no respite on there. It's just this three hours of, of extreme pain. So when you look at that, when you look at the cross, it's important to think of that. You should look at it. Um, the unbearable pain he endured for 180 minutes amid the noise of this jeering and shaming and the hatred and the envy and malice and slander and all undeservingly. Because, and it's us who get the reward from this. You know, for his pain, we receive the gift of knowing our own weaknesses and we're being offered the chance at life. Um, And then he is taken down from the cross and he spends the next two days conquering death and hell until he returns in his infinite risen glory. But we'll see him again We'll see him again in judgment, and that's the most important thing. So don't judge, but don't forget, we will also be judged.